Amen. It's been a few weeks since I've been up here. I was wondering if I still remember how to do this. Uh, but there have been some, some excellent uh, teaching from this pulpit in the last number of weeks, and I would encourage you, if you've missed, uh, Paul Koistra did a tremendous job at our Global Outreach Conference. I know a lot of you guys were traveling. Not only can you hear the audio online, but you can go on and watch the video if you click on his, uh, on his deal. But uh, Dr. Kifa Simpanji from Uganda spoke. Uh, it was challenging with his thick Ugandan accent. It was worth the work. And then uh, I really appreciated hearing uh, Josh speak to us last week. His journey is similar to mine in that I came from outside of Reformed tradition and worked my way in. And the last bastion, uh, the last thing that I came to was, was, was infant baptism. And so it is, I think, helpful to hear someone who has journeyed to that place. Uh, this morning we return to the book of John. We're in John 14, 24 to 31. Talking about God's... Spirit, as Jesus is leaving in this upper room discourse in John 13 through 17, and a lot of his teaching is about the Holy Spirit because he's leaving and the Spirit is coming in new and dramatic ways into the life of his God's people. And so Jesus, as he works through, is weaving, uh, teaching about things they need to know with, it, with this understanding of the life and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, I want to talk about the fact that God speaks to us. John chapter 14, 24 to 31. Hear then the word of God. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but it is the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all of these things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, and my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise and let us go from here. Pray with me. Father, would you send the helper, the Holy Spirit, that he might teach us all things and bring into remembrance in our hearts and in our lives your word with power. Father, we long not just to learn this morning, but to grow and to deepen and to be changed and to be made more like Jesus. You drive us to our knees and drive us to your word. By the power of your spirit, we ask and pray. Amen. The Bible is a story of a personal God who speaks, who speaks to us. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book that I found the title helpful. It has always stuck with me. It says, uh, he is there and he is not silent. Right? This is central to the reality of Christianity, that God is there, that God is, 
and that he is not silent, that he is a God that speaks to us. He's personal and he's relational and he has related to us as a human race through history and he continues to relate to us. It's one of the important implications of the image of God. We talk about, you know, there's a lot of discussion about what that image is, but at the very least it's this. It is that capacity that God has built into us that corresponds with him, his own image in us, so that we can know him, so that we can love him, so that we can relate to him. We are persons like he is a person. And so we are created as in his image, just like as our children are in our image, and we grow in the depth and power of our ability to relate with them because they are like us. And so God has made us like himself in some ways, ways that are communicable to us, so that we can know him, communicate with him. And God has been doing this since the very beginning. He, he walked with Adam in the, in the garden in the cool of the evening. He appeared in so many different ways in the Old Testament, sometimes in human form, sometimes as a burning bush, but all the time to talk to us, to talk to Abraham, to talk to Moses. The Old Testament is, is about half of, of, of the prophets who are the spokesmen of God, who delivered, thus says the Lord, to his people. And he, as he continues to speak to us, and they produce the Old Testament scriptures, which is God's word. And, of course, the ultimate communication is that the Father has spoken to us in the Son. Right? He has spoken to us in Jesus Christ. It's there in your bulletin under the first point, Hebrews chapter 1. The writer says that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. Right? That's what I've been saying. In many times, in many ways, God's a talker. God, God speaks to us. He relates to us. So many times, in many ways, he says, but in these last days, he has spoken, still talking. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. This one in, in whom all things are wrapped up as the heir of all things, who also was the, there at the creation of the world. He who is the beginning and the end, this eternal son of God, this eternal word of God. The living word became a human person. That's the whole point of the book of John, isn't it? After all, how does John start his book? What is the first thing John says is he wants to give you a context as you read his, his story of this guy. How does he start? He says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, but the word was God. And the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He made his living among us. He came. He became alive. The word of God became alive in a human life. In Revelation 19, it's there in your bulletin also, is John, who also wrote the Revelation, is wrapping up and giving us some, some ideas as he speaks of what Jesus has accomplished in his death. It says this, that he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, picturing him as a savior, one who sacrifices himself and pours out his lifeblood for our salvation. He is, he is clothed in this robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Jesus, the living Word of God, speaking into the world. Right? Isn't that what he says in verse 24? Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear, it's not mine. 
But it is the Father, the Father's words, who sent me, right? The Father speaking to us in the Son. What is, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen up, God is speaking to you. The words that I have been conveying to you as we have walked together, these aren't just my words. This is God speaking into the world and speaking into your life. And so in verse 25, he says, these words I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. Right? The words of God I have given to you while I have walked with you, while I have been with you. But he says, I am leaving. I've told you, he says down in verse 28, you heard me say to you, I'm going away. Jesus is, is leaving them and he's concerned as he leaves that his disciples understand something very important. And it's also very important for us to understand. And Jesus labors in this context once again to communicate to his disciples this fact. God is not done talking to you. He's not done speaking. He's not done communicating to you things that you need to know and to understand as his children. Isn't that what this whole section is about? He's preparing them for this transition, preparing them for them to continue to hear as he leaves and says, I will talk to you no longer, not much more. You know, but as he leaves, he prepares them to continue to hear, continue to understand what God is saying and what God is doing. And so in verse 29, he says, I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Told you before it takes place ahead of time, I'm preparing you because I want you to understand and to believe and to trust me when it happens. God did this a lot of times in the Old Testament. There are a lot of places as you're reading where God says things, he prophesies things, and then he says, you know, I've told you this ahead of time so that when it happens, you will know that I am the Lord. So that you will know that I am God. And Jesus is saying the same thing. I've told you this ahead of time to prepare you and so that you will believe, so that you will know that I am the Lord and that the Lord has been speaking through me and that he will continue to speak through me even as he promises in this text. In verse 30, he points out that things are drastically changing. I'm going to no longer talk with you. My time here is done. This is it for me. Because, he says, the ruler of this world is coming. What does that mean? The ruler of this world is coming. The ruler of this world is the devil. And he's coming for Jesus. And it's going to culminate in his torture and his death on the cross. Right? The enemy is coming for him. 1 John 5.19, it's there in your bulletin. It says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, right? So the ruler of this world is the enemy. There's a way that he has taken dominion or rather that we have given him dominion in our fall. As Christ comes to reclaim us and to reclaim his kingdom, to re-exert his power in his kingdom. In Revelation 12.4, he describes this big picture thing that is going on in in, uh, in symbolic language of dragons and so forth. But he, he gives this picture that the enemy, the devil, has been out for Jesus since before he was born. 
right? You get this picture in Revelation 12. I put it in your bulletin there for you. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. I think that woman is not Mary, per se, but Israel. It's a whole nother, whole nother thing. But there the dragon, the ancient dragon, the, the devil, stands before this woman waiting for her to give birth so that when she bore the child, she may devour it. And this, this sense that the dragon is out for the son, we see it in the slaughter of the innocents when, when Herod in his jealousy comes looking for Jesus and, and his family has to flee to Egypt and hide because the enemy seeks to destroy him from his birth. And we see it throughout his ministry there constantly plotting to destroy Christ. And he says, now the great enemy is coming for me again. And this time he will succeed. I'm leaving. But I want you to understand, even as Jesus announces this, he's, the enemy is coming and, uh, and he will succeed. I want you to understand something. He has no power over me. It's not that the enemy is winning at this point, right? And that's what he goes on to say. I want you to understand the, war, the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. I am about to do as the Father has commanded me, right? The will of God is, is, is playing out in this. He's doing the Father's will. So in other words, the, the cross and all that's about to happen to Christ is the plan and the will of God. It's this fascinating thing that happens not only throughout the Bible, but happens throughout your life. It's this thing that there are always a couple of wills at work, usually at least probably three. The enemies, yours, and God's, right? That that in this, this event, it is both the work of the devil, the rule of this world is coming for me, and he will get me. At the same time, it is the will and purpose of God. He's commanded me to go through this. No one has a claim on me. The enemy has no claim on me. It's the same kind of thing that you saw at work when Joseph, uh, if you remember, his brothers take him, plot against him, betray him, throw him into a pit, sell him to slavers and sell him to slavery in Egypt and all that comes with slavery in Egypt and all the mistreatment and betrayal and stuff that happens there. And at the end of his life as he confronts his brother and and he is unpacking what has happened and bringing meaning out of it and he says this, you, brothers, meant it for evil, which they did. The evil wills of evil men, the evil will of the dragon, the enemy of God. And then he says this astounding thing about the same events, but God meant it for good. I think you say that at the cross. The devil meant it for evil. The rule of this world came for him. But God meant it for good, for your salvation and for mine. And it's true of the Christian in everything. You know, all, there's a sense in which all suffering and all pain and all brokenness in this world is a work of the enemy of an evil will and of a brokenness in sin. But at the same time, God is at work willing in purposing and accomplishing salvation and life in the midst of it, he says, all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God works in all things, even the evil wills of evil men to accomplish salvation, first through Joseph for the entire nation of Israel and then through Jesus for his entire people in all ages. And he continues to work that good purpose. John 10, it's there in your bulletin, the last under the first point. He says this, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay my life 
down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down. My own accord, my own will. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. But this is the charge I received from my father. That's what he's saying right here. No one has a claim on me, but I do as the father has commanded me. The ruler of this world is coming. Death is on the horizon. But rest assured, the will and the purposes of God are being worked out for salvation in the midst of it. So he says to them, I will no longer be with you. I will no longer talk with you. But hear me. The Father is not done talking. Verse 26, he says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things, and He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said. God will keep talking. God will keep speaking. He will keep teaching And the Holy Spirit, this helper, the spirit of truth is going to do, he says two things here. I want to touch on each one of them. He says he will teach you all things and he will bring to remembrance all the things that I've taught you. Right? He's going to teach you all things. Right? Part of what I hear in that and part of what we know and we see from this is this. That the New Testament revelation isn't complete. When Jesus goes to the cross and the enemy comes for him this this second time and in his life, comes to an end, the New Testament revelation isn't complete. And they still don't fully understand who Jesus is, all the implications of his life and things that he's taught them. They don't fully understand the meaning of the cross. They don't even fully understand he's going to the cross. They do not fully understand what God is accomplishing and doing in this whole thing. John 16, 12, which is a couple chapters ahead, but probably five minutes ahead in this conversation, right? This is all one conversation. John 16, 12, he says this, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Right? You're not ready for them. You're not emotionally ready. You're not mentally ready. And if I told them to you, you wouldn't get it. Until he goes to the cross, until he dies, until he rises and appears to them, until he ascends into heaven in their full view to the right hand of the Father, until Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit, until these things happen, they will not fully understand the implications of what it is Jesus has done and accomplished in this life, in this death. In this resurrection, there's more they need to understand. There's more he wants them to know, but they can't understand it now. And so the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out in Pentecost. And what the Spirit does is he teaches them all things. In other words, he interprets the meaning of what Jesus has done. That he bore in his own body on the cross our sins. That we might die to sin and live to God. Right? That he is accomplishing for us an eternal salvation. That it wasn't the death of another criminal or, or miscreant. That it was the death of the eternal and living son of God. Who, who in his own death pays the price for our sin that we might live. And so the spirit comes and he interprets the death to the disciples. So as they write the rest of the New Testament. You know they unpack for us the meaning of all of these things. And it says that he will remind them of all of his teaching. And why is the answer is that? Just to provide us a New Testament. 
You know that the Old Testament demanded a New Testament? The Old Testament demanded a New Testament. It's full of promises. It's full of prophecies. It's full of expectations. All of which remain, the Old Testament ends and they remain unfulfilled. It ends like a cliffhanger. You know, that all this stuff that God has promised and said, and you know, and, it, and you reach this end, and then it just ends. And Jesus shows up, and he, and he fulfills all the hopes, and he fulfills all the promises, and he sacrifices himself for the salvation of the world as the promised Messiah. And how can all of this take place in fulfillment of the Old Testament? And there be no record of it. There'd be no capturing of it. There'd be no, no word from God, no record, no testament of what the living word of God has done and accomplished. And so the Father and the Son provide for the writing of the New Testament. The Son provides for the writing of the New Testament in the calling of 12 apostles. Right? And we're told under number 2 in Mark chapter 3 that he appointed the 12. He named them apostles so that they might be with him. He would send them out to preach and to have authority over demons, but he, he appointed them to be with him. So like they're with him right now in this upper room where nobody else is. You've got these 12 who are with him. They walk with him. They know him. They see him in every circumstance, in every, you know what it's like to live with somebody. You see them warts and all, right? And they're, 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 they are walking at every step with him, and he teaches them things he doesn't teach anybody else. Nobody else heard this sermon. Nobody else heard this teaching. But the Holy Spirit and this is God's part, where Jesus appoints the twelve that they would be with him. The Father sends the Holy Spirit, not just to teach them all things, but to remind them of everything that Jesus has been saying over these years. And connecting all these things that he's been saying that didn't have the full context of the cross to fully understand them. And so the Holy Spirit not only, and isn't good, it's not just human memory we rely on for a New Testament, for the record of what is here, but, but God himself indwelling, inspiring, teaching, and reminding that all that has happened and been done and said has been captured for us in the New Testament. 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy there in your bulletin. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, teaching and reminding them of everything that they would need to know giving us a full understanding. In these last days, the Father has spoken to us through the Son and through the Spirit, and He has given us the written Word of God. But what we need to understand this morning is even as Jesus sat with His disciples in the upper room on this day, preparing them to keep hearing God's Word, by the presence and the power of the Spirit in their hearts and in their lives. We need to understand this morning that God is still speaking. And He is still speaking to you. Do you believe that? That this God who spoke in many ways and in many times through the prophets and the oldest, who, who in these last days has spoken in His Son, is still there and He's still speaking. And His Word is to you. He wants to speak into your life and into your heart. Jesus often said in the course of His ministry, He who has ears, let Him hear. 
as he writes the letters to the churches, he says, let the churches, you know, hear what the Spirit is saying to his church. He's still saying it to us. He who has ears, let him hear. Right, this giving of the Holy Spirit to God's people is a central reality in the New Testament. It's a set, one of the central, you can't get any of it if you don't get that kind of a thing. You know, the giving of the Holy Spirit to God's people to indwell us as the indwelling Christ, continuing his ministry, speaking God's word into our lives. If we don't understand that, we miss the core of it. It's a central reality that he's within us to awaken our souls to the truth. Spurgeon said, it's there in your bulletin under the last point, all that Jesus was, the spirit of God is now to the church. Jesus has gone. The spirit has come. And he brings the father and the son near to us to walk with us, to teach us. The Spirit who inspired the apostles to write the Scripture, the Spirit that is behind the men speaking from God and and inscripturating, writing, and capturing for us all that God has said in a written word, this Spirit that accomplishes all of this, he says, dwells in you. The author has taken up residence that he might bring this word alive in and through us. So we have not only the written word, but the living word. And it's a living word. It's more than, than, than dead letters on a page because the author himself lives within us. And he's renewing that image of God in us that is created so that we have this, this foundation of relationship with God, true righteousness and holiness and the capacity to know him and to love him and to hear his voice and to respond to him and to relate to him as children would to a father. God continues to speak. Let me ask you this morning, are you listening? I mean, are you really listening? Do you you hear God speaking into your life, convicting you, challenging you, stretching you, driving you to your knees and then lifting you up again? Is he telling you the truth? Does he speak to you of his love? Does he speak to you of his power? Does he, are you listening? Do you have ears to hear? Because I believe that the foundation and the core of the Christian life is this relationship, and it's a relationship, all relationships, of communication. You talk to me and I talk back to you. It's the only way we know each other. It's the only way we get to know each other. It's the only way we get deeper with each other is this relationship. And at the core and foundation of the Christian life is a constant meditation of what God is saying to us and our lives responding in prayer and in obedience and, and this, this interchange, this relationship with a living God who speaks The Spirit takes this written word and He opens our hearts and our minds to understand and to receive it and then He applies it to our souls in ways that matter. William Law, it's there in your bulletin, he said the illumination of the text, which is what we call it, you know, the inspiration of the text is what happened with the apostles when they wrote it down. The illumination of the text is that work of the Spirit of God in us 
giving us ears to hear and eyes to see and awakening us to the power of the truth of it. This illumination of the text is nothing less than the opening of our eyes to the truth of bringing Christ near to the soul in fellowship and life-transforming power. Is that a real thing? Is that something that we long to experience as we walk with Christ? That the Spirit in indwelling us and invading our lives brings the Father and the Son near in fellowship in a real way? And transforms us then by the power of this relationship. This is why the writer of Hebrews calls the word of God living and active. He says the word of God is living and it's active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword dividing soul and spirit, bone and marrow. You know, judging and discerning the intents of the heart. He says it's living and active. Why? Because it's not dead letters on a page. It's a living spirit in, in you. The author alive in you. Bringing this word into the soul. It has the potential to live. The Spirit of God uses the word of God to awaken us, to transform us, to renew us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The psalmist in Psalm 19 says that the word revives the soul, that it makes wise the simple, that it rejoices the heart, that it enlightens the eyes. It's to be desired more than gold because there's a value in the power it has for the human soul, reviving it with wisdom and joy. And Spurgeon says, we can go so far as the letter goes and we can learn from the scriptures the words that Jesus of Jesus for ourselves. We can read these things. He says, but to understand these teachings is the gift of the Spirit of God and no one else. He makes us experimentally, his old way of saying experientially or existentially, really in our experience, experimentally and inwardly to know the force and the power of the truth which Christ revealed. We know so much truth. It's on the radio. I mean, we have so much media. We have so much information about the truth of what the Bible says. But what we need more than anything else is to know the power and the force of that truth to change a life, to make us different, so that we behave differently, where there is love and joy and peace and Patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control and humility. You know, to make us like Christ. So much information, so much truth. But what we need is the power and the force of the truth, which is nothing else and no one else but the Holy Spirit alive and working in us. And bringing the word home. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to change the people of God. But we must be in the Word. We must be in it. It's like the lottery. I'm not commending the lottery. I'm not saying the lottery is good. I'm not saying play the lottery. I'm just saying the Word is like the lottery in this one way. 
If you're not in it, you can't win it. Right? If you're not in it, you can't win it. If you're not in it, you're not going to hear the voice of God in the way that God wants you to hear it. He's not going to speak to you and convict you and work in you and challenge you and stretch you and encourage you and bring hope and patience and all the things that we long for. We can't win it if we're not in it. Because it's here that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to change and transform the people of God. Will you tend to spend time in God's Word? Today? Tomorrow? Will you make time in your week to get before God? And I mean, and I mean that quite literally, to get before God. Because here's the thing, as you come to the Word, as you read the Scripture, we must invite the Spirit of God to speak to us, to work in our lives with power. You should never open your Bible and start reading if you haven't been on your knees pleading with God to speak to you and to work in you and making yourself open and pleading for eyes to see and ears to hear that God would meet you in His Word. Beware of resting on the mere letter without expecting the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Beware of coming to the Bible but not coming to the God of the Bible. To seek your God and not just information. Beware of reading the Bible, but not hearing from God. We need God to speak into our lives and to grip our hearts. Beware of knowing your Bible, but not having a life being conformed to the Bible. By the transforming power of the Spirit who meets us here. Beware of a faith that does not expect to experience all that the Scripture holds out to our faith. Will you desire the work of the Spirit of God? Will you invite His presence? Will you pray for His power? Will you plead with Him to grip your heart, to make the truth real to your soul, to awaken you to it in such a way that it brings life and passion and growth, spiritual growth, change? You know, reading the Bible can be a struggle. Just open it up and read it. Reading the Bible can be a struggle. We all struggle with it. But when we are motivated by our need to be with Christ, when we are motivated by our need to hear His voice, His sheep know His voice, when we are motivated to experience His life and His power in ours, when we're motivated to have Him manifest Himself to us, as He promised in earlier in this same text, that He would manifest Himself to us by the presence and power of the Spirit. When we come like this, then the Scripture becomes food for a hungry soul. It rejoices the heart. It revives the soul. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God change the people of God. Pray with me. You have told us that we will not live by bread alone, but that we must live by every word that comes from your mouth. Oh, would you teach us this hunger, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness, a righteousness that is only painted and imprinted on our souls as we meet with you in the power of your spirit, in the truth of your word. Oh God, would you make us a people of the book? 
Would you even today and in this week help us to make the time to get before you on our knees with ears to hear? We long to hear your voice. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name.